Welcome to the KPMG Financial Reporting Podcast Series, delivering fresh insights and perspectives around major accounting and financial reporting developments across a range of timely topics. We thank you for joining today. Hello, I'm John Barbagallo, Managing Director at KPMG. And in today's episode, I have the pleasure of discussing the recently enacted Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act with two of my colleagues from KPMG, Ashby Corum, a partner with Washington National Tax, and Angie Storm, a partner in our Department of Professional Practice. Ashby and Angie have been closely monitoring this tax legislation, and I want to thank them today for joining us to share their insights on the new tax laws. But before we dive into some of the accounting implications of the new laws, Let's kick off today's podcast with some background to help level set. So Ashby, tell us why this tax legislation is different from what we have seen in the past. Well, John, one of the things this act introduces that's a little bit unique is a series of credits with an ability to monetize the credits that's different than what we've seen in the past. Historically, most tax credits have shown up on income tax forms can only be utilized by having an entity incur income tax, basically by being profitable and having positive taxable income and incurring tax and utilizing the credits against those. But this legislation introduces a concept of direct pay credits, and these show up, they still are monetized through the tax forms, but they show up kind of like an estimated payment and in which you can get the money back if you don't have taxable income or incur a tax. The second unique way to monetize the value of credits is this also introduces some other credits that are transferable. And so these credits, as the name implies, can be essentially sold to another taxpayer. These transferable credits have existed at the state level for a while, but this is something a little bit unique at the federal level. So essentially, a taxpayer generates a credit, and then they can find buyer out in the marketplace. They're allowed to transfer the credit once and only once. They have to sell it in exchange for cash, but that cash is treated as essentially just tax-exempt income as if it were some kind of just direct payment with the government as part of their tax system. And so then that credit gets transferred over to another taxpayer who's in a position to utilize them. And that's really for taxpayers that might generate a large amount of credits from a one-time transaction. It might be more than they'd be able to utilize on their own. Or if they happen to still be in a money-losing phase or if they happen to be a pass-through entity and would no taxes at all. Yeah, it's really interesting, Ashby. Thanks. I appreciate that. I imagine this presents some new accounting challenges to think about. So, Angie, walk us through the accounting implications of direct pay and transferable credits. All right, John. Thanks. We will certainly go into this in more detail on some of our future episodes, but high level, as Ashby pointed out, the direct pay credits are really novel to U.S. federal tax law, but we have seen them in some other jurisdictions historically. So we do have a little bit, at least least a tiny bit of experience thinking through them under U.S. GAAP. So we think those credits that have that direct pay option, and that is the the CHIPS credits and then many of the clean energy related credits in the IRA, but most of those are direct pay only for tax exempt and government entities are more like straight government grants. And that's because the taxpayer can realize the benefits by basically getting a refund in cash if it doesn't have a federal income tax liability. 
So because that the benefit gets realized and it doesn't depend on the taxpayer's status or position and it's not keyed off of taxable income, those credits we think are outside of the scope of topic 740 on income taxes. So as many of you know, U.S. GAAP does not provide any guidance on the accounting for government grants for business entities. Lots of companies actually do already have a policy for accounting for government grants. A lot of that came through when we had a number of grants that came through the CARES Act. But other companies will need to pick a policy for the first time relative to these direct pay grants. Most of the time, we do see companies analogizing to IAS 20, which is the standard and IFRS standards that provides guidance on both recognition and measurement for asset-based grants, so what we would normally think of like an investment tax credit, and also income-based grants like the production tax credits. So both of those models result in the benefit going above the line, so outside of taxes, but the balance sheet and income statement presentation really depends on the nature of the grant and the costs that that grant is expected to offset. Transferable credit, the ones Ashley was talking about that can be sold to a third party, those are a bit of a different animal, but we have had those exist in other jurisdictions historically as well. So on those, we believe that the transferable credit accounting is really based on a company's intent. So if you intend to hold that credit to offset your income tax liability, you account for it under topic 740, so just like any other income tax. If you intend instead to sell it, so realize it through a means other than simply reducing the federal income tax liability, then that's going to move into that government grant model like what we just talked about for the or direct pay credits. Thanks, Angie. I look forward to hearing more about these concepts when we speak to some of our other KPMG colleagues in future episodes. Ashby, this legislation also includes a new excise tax on stock repurchases for certain public companies. Tell us how this is going to work. Thanks, John. Yeah, the legislation includes a new excise tax. It's on the repurchase of corporate stock. It's assessed 1% of the fair value of share repurchases made by domestic corporations. The amount is offset by the fair value of share issuances during the same year. So it's really on that net, or maybe a better way to say it, on the excess of share repurchases over share issuances during the year. And there are also certain other exceptions that can come into play. As with any new legislation or completely new tax, there are a number of issues in practice that will have to be resolved over time. How do you think about forfeitures of shares, certain transactions that might be a tax-free reorganization for income tax purposes, and questions may arise whether those are subject to this tax or not. And there can be some transactions where the exact date or exact time that you determine the fair value of the security may come into play. And so over time, we should get clarifying regulations and other guidance from Treasurer on how some of those nuances work. Thanks, Ashby. So, Angie, turning to you, so it sounds like, again, we're going to be waiting for further interpretation from the Treasury Department. So what's the current thinking on how this is all going to work from an accounting perspective? 
Yeah, Jen, this has been a really interesting one. Maybe at its basic level, if you think about what the excise tax is levied on. So it's levied on the value of stock repurchases and not on a company's income, right? So in that way, it is not an income tax. So we can start by saying we know it's not based on taxable income, so it's not in the scope of topic 740 on income taxes. So then the next natural question is, okay, well then what guidance applies? So if you sort of think generally about how this works, if you pay, let's say $10 million in cash to buy back your own common stock, you're gonna have a $100,000 excise tax liability that must get remitted to the government. So typically when you've got a direct cost to a treasury stock buyback, like the $100,000, that cost will typically reduce equity as part of the cost of the treasury stock and not profit and loss. I think some folks have reasons about whether that tax is really a direct cost per se, because as Ashby mentioned, the amount can change due to stock issuances during the year. But generally, we think that companies will be accounting for these direct costs. And I guess what we'll find out as Treasury provides more information is really the scope of this thing. So it could be repurchases of stock that are classified as liabilities. So in that case, it would become, again, a direct cost of extinguishment. And so some of these might end up in P&L and some of them might end up in equity. So there's still some discussion going on in this issue, but I think that's pretty much where we're headed. Yeah, thanks, Angie. A lot there to digest. And, you know, I look forward to hearing from someone for our debt equity team on a future podcast on this concept. Ashby, lastly, we have to talk about the new corporate AMT or alternative minimum tax that's in this legislation. So tell us more about what's in the legislation. All right. The new legislation brings back an alternative minimum tax. However, this one is very different than the one we had a few years ago. And it's really targeted at companies that have positive book earnings, but yet aren't paying any tax. And so it assesses a minimum tax based on 15% of a term adjusted financial statement income. And adjusted financial statement income is really your, your net income per your financial statements with a series of adjustments, including trying to get the amount up to something similar to pre-tax income, but also there are a variety of other adjustments, including adjustments related to depreciation, to use tax depreciation instead of book, and, and some adjustments for pensions also, and a few other adjustments. So it's not a clean book pre-tax income number. Thanks, Ashby. So, Angie, as you know, you know, corporate AMT was repealed back in 2018 under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act under the Trump administration. So, Angie, is the accounting treatment the same as before the repeal? Yeah, John, the concepts are still generally the same. So, as you mentioned, even though legacy AMT went away with tax reform in 2017, the guidance in Topic 740 on how to account for alternative minimum tax regimes stayed. So it stuck around. And that guidance requires companies to basically account for the incremental tax owed under the AMT system as it's incurred. So just as current tax expense. So a company doesn't adjust its deferred taxes from the regular statutory federal rate to the AMT rate. It simply continues to measure its deferred taxes as before and then books the incremental tax when it pays it. Now, 
the corporate AMT regime does have a credit carry forward feature. So if I pay corporate AMT in a particular year, I receive a credit carry forward that is basically equal to the amount that I paid over and above my regular tax liability. And I can use that carry forward in future years to offset my regular tax, just so long as that regular tax liability doesn't dip down to below what the corporate AMT would be for that year. So companies, when they are in AMT, they will recognize that carry forward as a deferred tax asset and then assess the need for evaluation allowance on that asset. That analysis and the VA analysis in general can be really tricky if a company expects to be a perpetual AMT taxpayer, but we'll get into all the gory details of that on our AMT episode. Angie and Ashby, thank you so much for joining us today. You know, it seems like there are a lot of practice issues here. Uh, I know we talked about this new tax legislation at a high level, and I look forward to having you two, as well as some of our other colleagues, discuss more of these issues in our later episodes in this podcast series. So stay tuned for more episodes and have a great day. Thank you for listening to this KPMG Financial Reporting Podcast. For more in-depth financial reporting developments, analysis, and podcast episodes, please visit frv.kpmg.us and be sure to subscribe today. Also, we are social. You can also follow us on LinkedIn at KPMG Financial Reporting View or with hashtag KPMG FRV.